Welcome to Talking Points, a ballet and dance podcast where we speak with some of the most extraordinary and famous dancers, artistic directors and choreographers. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today I'm speaking with the Australian Ballet's resident choreographer, Alice Topp. Alice was born and raised in Bendigo, a small town in regional Victoria. She started dancing at the age of four and was destined for a career as a ballerina. While Alice's career at the Australian Ballet is widely known, what many don't know is that Alice's journey to the Australian Ballet wasn't like most. She didn't train at the Australian Ballet School. Instead, she did a stint at the Royal New Zealand Ballet Company. She broke her foot and then worked in a Melbourne pub to continue her training. Even more incredibly, Alice never imagined she'd be a choreographer. In this wonderfully candid interview, Alice talks about her journey to becoming only the second female resident choreographer in the 60-year history of the Australian Ballet, to now launching Project Animo, a huge creative and choreographic undertaking to bring the royalty of the Australian dance scene back to the stage. This episode of Talking Points is sponsored by MDM Dancewear. MDM Dancewear is an Australian company founded by former professional dancers Tim Heathcote and Simone Goldsmith. Their products combine a scientific approach with an intimate knowledge of the art of dance, which makes for superior products and a real difference to the dancers who rely on them. MDM is delighted to offer Talking Points listeners a 10% discount code for online purchases. Just head to mdmdance.com and use the discount code MDMALICE. It's valid for the next four weeks. Welcome, Alice. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I guess my first question is, how does a girl from Bendigo become the resident choreographer of the Australian Ballet? She's got to be mad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, when you put it like that, you know, I never had choreography as a dream. I really wanted to be a dancer, but I did do a little summer school in Bendigo once where we had to create our own dances and it terrified me. I just was so used to being instructed what to do and and taught, you know, the steps and, and I like to follow, not lead, that I, you know, I just hadn't exercised that part of my brain and it terrified me. I wanted to to be perfect at it. But yeah, Bendigo, Bendigo to here. (laughs) Okay, so let's go right back to the beginning. Where did you start dancing? So my mum had a little dancing school when we were kids. A little local hall taught some some local primary kids from Quarry Hill Primary School and family friends and that kind of thing. Mm. And she called it movement to music. It wasn't like classical training or anything. It was more just an appreciation of moving and expressing yourself. We had right. ribbons wow. and parasols and <laughs> costumes and I think that discipline and and I wouldn't have appreciated that at wow. that time. I wasn't I would have gone, nah, that's not for me. I just I loved you know, moving my body to music and the freedom Mm. and the expression and just, you know, having fun. And I did that until I was about five or six. And then my sister and I did horse riding and gym. And I returned to ballet when I was eight. And I did RAD from eight till I was about 
10 or 11. Okay. And then I went uh, full-time at the Victorian College of the Arts Secondary School in Melbourne. I boarded at Redcourt Hostel. I'm not sure if it's still there in Armidale. And it was this beautiful, big old building. And it housed people from years 7 to 12 from VCAS and the Australian Ballet School. Wow. So what, you were just looking over your shoulder at all the other ballerinas that got into the Aussie Ballet School? Yeah. Oh, look, it was really, it was such a wonderful experience, but also an incredibly challenging time in my life when I look back. Um, And particularly now that my sister has her niece and nephew, they're nine and 11, and I was not much older and moved from Bendigo two hours away to, you know, a city. This is before mobile phones okay. and, and all of that. Mm. And I'd be on a pay phone every night to mum and dad, terribly homesick, crying my little eyes out. I'd go home on weekends, but yeah, to do half a day of dance and half a day of schooling at VCAS. And yeah, it was a tough time, but nothing like a challenging time to really sort of work out what it is you want. And and so does VCAS take you through to what, the equivalent of the final year of high school or? Yeah, so year, they go through um, until year 12, mm. um, but I only did year eight. Okay. I ended up going full-time at a school called Ballet Theatre of Victoria. Mm. So my teacher who taught me in Bendigo moved to Melbourne and opened a full-time school. Um, and it was full-time classical school. And so I, as much as I loved VCAS, the experience of learning tap and jazz and kinetic awareness and all of that, and I was such a bunhead, (laughs) you know, it was all classical. I just, I was a shocker at everything but that. (laughs) And uh, so, and and also, again, it was a very, it was a very difficult experience. Um, I'd had a year in Bendigo at a high school and I was in 7F. So there were there were many forms and there were a lot of kids and I had my, my group of friends and I thought, no, just go to Melbourne, this will be great, I want to dance all day. And I joined in year eight and there were only a handful of girls. I think the class had about 14 or 15 students. It wasn't large. Oh, that's so surprising. I actually would have thought VCAS would be hugely popular yeah. in terms of numbers. I don't, it wasn't a very large class. And I joined where people had already sort of formed their friendships. So I really felt like I didn't fit in. And also I was a country bumpkin. <laughs> like I had my trackies on and my blunnies and I didn't wear any makeup and I was, you know, Nigel no friends. And they they had their hair in a bun, their tight jeans, their sort of heels and their makeup on and Oh my gosh, I was I was a little ugly duckling and oh, it was it was the worst. It was the worst. But um somehow through all of this and through a really what sounds like a really tricky time in your really early teens, your love for ballet remains. And it's actually quite incredible really because a lot of people would think, mm, I'm out of here, I'm back to Bendigo, back to my friends, I'm going back to high school. Yeah, well look uh, there was something about knowing the sacrifice that my folks had made to give me that opportunity. Mm. They just wanted me to follow my dreams and to have the best chance wow. at doing that. Again, I look back and I just want to give that little girl a hug because it was a really hard time. Mm. But at the end of that year, we had our performance season and it was the first time I'd been on stage in years and I, I had a little solo and I remember thinking, all of that sort of suffering was worth that moment I had on stage. Wow. So I think that really, for me, was the moment where I, I thought, yeah, 
This is it. So how do you then become a professional ballerina? So I then wasn't able to stay at the hostel because it was only affiliated with the um, Victorian College of the Arts. So I was commuting for a few weeks um, until I found a boarding house in Melbourne, but I was so happy to be back at home. I just persisted with that and I ended up commuting from Bendigo to Melbourne for four years. So I did that between the ages of 14 and 18. So I had to 5.50 a.m. <laughs> and I'd get to Melbourne and I'd train all day and I'd finish around 4.30 and catch a 5.30 train home. And I'm, I'd do studying on the train. Okay. So I did school by distance education, Victoria, which was which was wonderful. Wow. Because I feel like in Melbourne at that time, I mean, most budding ballerinas, you know, were really gunning for the Australian ballet. It was a it was the well-trodden path. So what happened? Yeah, I didn't audition for the Australian Ballet School. I knew it was a feeder school. You know, we just placed all our trust in what was working for me after a patchy year mm. um, at VCAS. So, yeah, so I did I did that for, for a few years. I burnt out towards the end of it. I found it incredibly hard. I auditioned for the Australian Ballet Company when I was 18 and wasn't accepted. I don't think a lot of people would know that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I didn't expect to get a job fresh out of school, um, which was a good sort of mindset to have because I then persisted with New Zealand Ballet and got a job there um, and had an incredible experience with that company. But, yeah, not getting into, into the ballet company the first time wasn't a massive rejection for me. Um, I think after having, you know, a difficult few years, it, that wasn't going to stop me. Mm. Um, and I knew New Zealand was a smaller company and they had contracts available and I was very, very fortunate to pick up one um, shortly after my 19th birthday. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's still so young to join a company. I know, I know. Well, we, we had someone at the ballet company who was 17, just shy of 18, and... I don't know. I I think in hindsight now, just when I see the little poppets down the corridor at the ballet school and, you know, I just think, gosh, they're just so young and green and it, you know, I, I, it's hard to imagine myself being that person. And But also, you know, things have changed so much that when people commute now or when they're in a big city, you know that you can follow them on the phone. You, they've got, they can study and do school by correspondence on an iPad. That home learning and Zoom is a thing now. Whereas, you know, I used to get the the envelope in the in the post and then have to post it at the end of the week my subjects and go in for the exam. You know, once a, 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 a term, it does, but really. and it doesn't feel like that long ago. But you know, just look at my <laughs> crow's feet and ask my hips, and it certainly is <laughs> an age ago. Um, so. So you start your first professional job, yeah. Royal New Zealand Ballet Company. Yeah. What's that like? Moving countries, joining a company? Oh, look, it was such a liberating experience. I think because my experience of being away from home when I was a kid was really stressful. Mm. Uh, and then I'd, I'd grown and 19, I still thought, okay, well, I mean, it's still so young. Mm. And I just wanted to have the reward of performing and mm. learning and growing with a group of people that have a shared passion. You know, there's nothing like being in company life and getting to know a group of people yeah. with the same, you know, passion. And um, Who was artistic director at the time? Gary Harris was okay. the artistic director at the time, yeah. And, 
Oh, it was so wonderful. So I had a, a short-term contract for Peter Pan and then I got a my con- contract renewed for a full year the following year and it was the first time the company had toured overseas in a long time and I got to do a six-week tour of the UK. We, we toured to Edinburgh, Glasgow, Bath, wow. Manchester, Sadler's Wells, all these incredible places and um, it was a, a six-week tour and oh, just, you know, it, it was for for a 19, 20-year-old, performing these extraordinary works, there were 24 dancers in the company at that time. We were a little family. Mm. We we shared rooms. I and that. And um, it was such a special experience getting to know a small group of people that became family very, very quickly. So the experience I had over there was tremendous. So I was there for two and a half years. The final year was a real challenge. I broke my foot landing from a jump. Wow. in rehearsals. Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't think many people would know that either. No, no. So you broke your foot. Okay. I broke a bone in my foot and it was sort of displaced the bone. It wasn't a clean fracture. Okay. So after, unfortunately, six weeks in a moon boot, it hadn't healed hardly at all. So they then put me in, in on crutches and um, there was the option of refracturing it and pinning it. Um, but oh, it just boy. seemed like a, for what is a little bone, a really long recovery time. And for a small company, it was very, it was too difficult for them to carry injured dancers. And I got the either, you need to be back by this point or you're gone. Wow. Okay. So that's big. I mean, but I also get it. I mean, small companies don't have the funds to carry long-term injured dancers. That aren't performing. But I mean, it's pretty hard on a what, 21-year-old? Yeah. It's um, it's a lot, it's a lot to deal with and it's part and parcel of the industry, but um, you don't imagine when you've finally made it and you're living the dream to just see it robbed like that mm-hmm. so quickly. And I that year was incredibly challenging and, and I ended up losing my job. Okay. Um, and I mean, do you know, it is really funny that your story has taken this turn because I really thought you were going to tell me that from the New Zealand ballet, you were cherry-picked into the Australian ballet. Oh, no, the glamour. Oh, <laughs> park that somewhere else. No, there was nothing glamorous about this. Oh, gosh. So you returned with a broken foot. Yeah, yeah. And no job. Yeah, so I re- rehabbed over there um, and came back. Um, I kind of figured, you know, it, it's really hard for dancers to get a job post-injury. Mm. Usually what's great is if the company are able to get you back up on your feet and you continue performing because... And build that confidence back up. Yes. But also people don't like to employ dancers no. post-injury if they have no security and can't prove, you know, yeah. that they're going to be okay and not a liability. Yeah, because the injury might come back in like six weeks, 12 weeks, and then they're what? Essentially paying to rehab a dancer. Yeah. Okay. So what did you do? I spent my savings and I did a two-month cattle call audition tour <laughs> in Europe. I spent, I just packed my bags and looked up all the YHAs and I stayed at all the hostels and just plotted where I would go and I did 15 to 20 cattle call auditions in Europe. Okay, and how did that go? Yeah, I came back with no work. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it was great for her. It was not good for my uh, my bank account <laughs> and it certainly wasn't good for, for my confidence, let's just say that. Was it a good life experience? You know, I look at it now and a lot of resilience was cultivated <laughs> during that time and, you know, oh, it was unbelievable. And I was sharing this story the other night actually with, with some friends and, you'd have your little map and it'd be snowing and it, it, you know, couldn't roll your suitcase because it'd throw down the stones in the snow and you'd be carrying this suitcase around trying to find a street and you didn't have your phone and, oh, because no, there were no phones and without Google Maps, you know, and you just did the thing, right? You did the thing and it didn't so seem so um, as absurd as it does now mm. because mm. everybody, that's what you did, you know. I, I look at it now and I go, yeah, a lot of sort of resilience and tenacity was, was cultivated in that time because... <laughs> so did you not secure one job? No. Nothing. No. I, I went, I remember, vividly remember this audition. I'd travelled from one part of Germany to the next on an overnight train and I arrived at this audition and, and at that point you either sent in your DVD or VHS or whatever it was back then and sent an email and you'd, you'd send your height and, and whatnot um, and I remember turning up and there were hundreds of people, people who had registered and people who hadn't. And I was in class number seven or eight and I had a number and the the darling girl in front of me, we all poured in, <laughs> poured into the studio and we put our bags down and someone walked around and put their hand on her shoulder and said, thank you, you won't be required here anymore. She was like, but I haven't even done anything. I haven't even danced. And they said, you're just not the right type. She's either too tall or what? She was like, I've just come from Spain. I came from Spain overnight. And I just wanted to cry my little eyes out for her. Just the brutality of it. Oh, it was so savage. And I remember making it through to Grand Allegro, but I was schwitzing and I was a nervous little wreck because I was waiting for someone to come and tap me on the shoulder. And the pressure and it was it was obscene, really. So how did you even find the auditions? I mean, there was no Insta, no Facebook. No, there, there used to be a website and I just combed through and bought a round-the-world ticket. <laughs> I mean, it just sounds so insane now. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, yeah, I mean, I did it and I look back on it and I just think, you know, all of that... Um, has gone into who I am now and so I'm I'm really grateful for those experiences at the time not so much <laughs> I mean I can imagine that and so what happens you run out of money or what do you do well there there were a couple of months there that that the auditions run mm. I, I ran out of money and I just couldn't I, I didn't have the means to just stick it out I, I went to um, Antwerp and I I took class for a week with the company there and the artistic director at the time said to me, I really love your work but I've just had to fire 13 dancers because of funding cuts. Do you think you could hang around and just work in hospitality and then maybe, you know, at the end of a couple of months something might become available? And I just thought I can't get a working visa to work in hospital. I I wasn't in a position to do that and then pay for dance classes on the side. And maybe get a job. Maybe. So, um, and you coming back to Australia, I felt like it would be 
you know, I had that that element of um, feeling defeated and am I a failure and, and can I continue with this? But there was something in me that just felt like I hadn't finished this chapter of my life, that I, I'd only just gotten started and I still had a lot more to say and experience and I'd had tough times before, sure. Is this going to be the way I want it to end? No. So I just... Uh, so what happens? Do you move back in with mum and dad? I did for a bit, but then I ended up moving to Melbourne and living with my aunt and cousins in Brunswick East. Okay. They had a study and I lived in their study and then I got a job at a pub and an ice creamery and ended up paying for ballet classes after being paid to dance. And that was the hard thing because... I was working five nights a week at an ice creamery and then Friday, Saturday nights at a pub and then I'd do dance training in the morning. Which just seems so absurd. Yeah, so I'd travel, I'd get on a tram at about six in the morning and travel south to the National Theatre Ballet School mm-hmm. and I'd do their school classes. They had a full-time course and the director at the time, Beverly Fry, said I could come in as an open age student (laughs) at the ripe age of 21. (laughs) And uh, I did classes. I'd do back-to-back advanced and intermediate. So I'd go from eight to 12 two-hour classes and I'd do four hours straight. And then I'd work at the ice creamery or the pub and until one in the morning or whatnot. And be back for class at eight. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for maybe five months and then I got pneumonia. I feel the story is not exactly what I was expecting. Look, it wasn't what I was expecting. (laughs) (laughs) I had... um, Pneumonia. Oh, I know, it was crazy. I had one really good right bicep from (laughs) scooping ice cream because, you know, one really good gun and the other one from pouring beer. And, uh, yeah, we had a (laughs) T-shirt... A uniform for the ice creamery and I think the late nights, the pub, you could still smoke in the pubs at that time, um, which seems crazy now that you're not allowed to, but I remember that passive smoking and cool. yeah, yes. I got pneumonia and ended up going, look, I can't do this for that long. Uh, New Zealand Ballet came back to Australia and they um, were performing a a wonderful program and let me do classes for a week and there was a window of opportunity for me to rejoin the company and the artistic director at the time said, look, I'm 99% sure I've got a job for you but you'll have to start on Monday and it was Friday and he said I've got to, you know, keep this uh, open audition though in Wellington tomorrow because I've advertised it. Called me the next day and said they'd found someone stronger. So I just thought, right, that's it. Hang up the point, Boots. I cannot continue to do this. How much resilience does one person need? I vividly remember going on on my way to the pub going, I've got to quit my job and it's not two weeks notice or, you know, the right protocols and, and then getting that call and uh it was a tough shift. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I went to the National Theatre the, the next week and I, I said I can't do it anymore. Thank you so much for your support and generosity having me train during this time. And Beverly Fry said, just before you quit, just before, just before, I just got this email today, have you considered teaching? And I said, no, no, I'd be, I'd be sh- 
shocking. And uh, she said the Australian Ballet have this new program. It's a pilot program. It's called Out There. And they are looking for dance educators. They need dancers, professional dancers, um, strong enough to represent the company, but they can't use company dancers. It's a new program doing in-school workshops in public and private schools around regional Victoria. Okay. Part of the process was an interview and an audition because they needed dance educators. And wow. so I said, sure, I'll go, I'll go do it and I'll become a dance teacher. I feel like there's not so much enthusiasm as you say that. Oh, there was, but there was still that element of resignation that, okay, this is the new chapter. You're not going to be a performer, okay. but you can pass on your passion and knowledge, you know, yeah. to others. But also I, I was pretty low in confidence at this time. It was, it was rock bottom for me at that point. And after, you know, losing my job and then the auditions overseas and then pneumonia and then getting knocked back from New Zealand a year later, I just was like, okay, done. Final straw. Yeah. It's over. And I imagine you grieve that. It's it's really a grief to let go of something you've been working for for over a decade. Yeah. So um, I went and did this audition, but I was a little bit cheeky beforehand and I just thought, look, last hurrah, just say at the same time while you're auditioning in the class, can you just check me out, see if you think that I might be able to get a job in the company, I'll come back. I love that. So brazen, really. Oh, insane. Um, but I did the audition and had my interview and... Look, I was just so thrilled to get the job uh, with the Out There program as a dance educator because I thought this is this is great. I can continue to love and celebrate the art form that has been my passion and share that with other people and connect in different ways, mm-hmm. not the performer audience relationship. Mm-hmm. So I was thrilled to get that job and at the end of them uh, saying that I I would be successful in getting the job. They said, can you come back next week and take class with the company? And a glimmer, a little flicker. Um, So I went back and did three classes the following week and at the end of it, David offered me a job for the next year with the company. Wow. And this is David McAllister. Yes. I mean, was that just, I can't even imagine. Was it just like the relief the exhilaration and I, I guess even perhaps disbelief. Look, it was like nothing else. I remember calling my mum and just floods of tears for both of us. Uh, and I feel like I'm getting Oh, teary. I'm getting teary. Oh, but yeah. it just, um, I, I vividly remember just being... Uh, so overwhelmed, so thrilled, overjoyed and, and like you said, disbelief in wonder that I was just so lucky to be at that point in time where they happened to have contracts available, a certain amount of people had left that year and that I happened to be in that position of all, the moon's aligned. It, it just felt like it was a very surreal experience. Wow, because I feel like so many people listening to this, you know, who haven't had that dream run into the Australian Ballet School and then into the Australian Ballet Company, yeah, you know, or whichever company you're gunning for, I guess, I think your story just shows there's so many ways to achieve the dream. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I look back at, at that journey and I know everybody's got their own story. Mm. 
At the time, um, I guess I was pretty relentless in my pursuit of, okay, there's another little hurdle, there's another little hurdle, and gosh, they hurt at the time. Mm. So I think, you know, it, progress isn't linear and you can't just go, this is the direct route to get to where you want to be. Mm. There are many different ways. And I guess you never know how many hurdles, you know, remain in front yeah. of you. You could have rehabbed your foot in New Zealand in three weeks and stayed with the Royal New Zealand Ballet Company. Or it could have been non-union and never healed and mm. then your career's over. Yeah. You know, it could have gone in many, many different yeah. ways. Um, and so at the back of your mind through all of this, are you harbouring dreams to become a choreographer? No. Nothing? No. No. <laughs> Not one Not bit. one Nothing. iota. No. No. And, and so we are still all, I want to be a dancer, a ballerina, dreams achieved. Yep. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it before, but I guess choreography is not a muscle that a lot of dancers flex. Like you're always told what to do. The choreography often precedes you by hundreds of years. You're not really growing up thinking, what am I going to create? Yeah. Your first work, I think, was for Body Talk. So how did that come about? Um, the way that came about, we hadn't had a female choreographer consistently for a few years and and uh, so Nicolette Freyon, I remember seeing her in the lift after a, we'd done a show of Diverge. And she usually conducts live. Yes. For and all the live ballet performances, an incredible woman. Yeah, and so I'd done a show and, and there was a little featured spot at the beginning of Divergence and she said when I got in the lift, have you ever thought about choreographing? And I, I said, no, nah, come on, what would I do? No, no, I haven't. She said, I think you'd be good at it. And I mean, that's pretty incredible, really. And I imagine actually fairly unusual for the musical director, the conductor of the orchestra to say to a dancer, you could be a choreographer. That's really a woman backing another woman there. It is. But also I have asked her since and, and I said, you know, what did you see that I didn't? But she did say that my approach to things and, and watching me, it it's, uh, was an unusual path to the company. And <laughs> I love that that's the, you know, well, an unusual path. It, but it, it does give you a different lens. Mm. I really do think because when I did get asked to do it, um, David gave me a couple of days because it was last minute mm. and I thought, I've seen people when I was working at the pub and the ice creamery and paying for dance and after that experience, mm. I know, I'd know i known a lot of people who were applying for grants and space and, dan you know, trying to get dancers to put on their own project and they were fighting really hard for the platform that I'd just been handed the opportunity for. You know, someone had just given me this chance to do exactly what they were fighting so hard for. I just thought it would be criminal if I didn't take it up. And do you think Nicolette spoke to David and said, you know, I see this in Alice? She did say, because when David approached me, he said, look, Nicolette thinks that you'd be good at choreographing. So have a think. What do you think? But look, I don't know if they knew either. I think they probably thought I'd say, I'd, you know, give it a crack, which I did. But I don't think that they would have foreseen that it would become my number one passion and the thing that I would pursue, you know. I'm indebted to them for, for seeing whatever they saw in me because I still don't see <laughs> <laughs> So you go through your first choreographic experience. Mm -hmm. You choreograph this piece for Body Talk. It would have been, I think, 2010 and it's a huge success and then you go on to choreograph years and years of works for the Australian Ballet. Yes. 
can you tell me how that conversation plays out with David, um, this is David McAllister, for you to become resident choreographer? Yes. Well, I did four body talk works and I think it would have been around my fourth. I think I expressed to him at some point that my ultimate goal would be to become a resident choreographer. And there'd only been one other female in the ballet company's history. So in in 60 years next year, the only other resident female was Natalie Weir uh, back in 2000 and something. I think she only did three works, didn't she? So a relatively tiny stint in over 60 year history. Yes. So I think I kind of planted that seed early on because it was something that was really important to me because of the fact that it was something I really saw I felt at home doing. I felt felt comfortable choreographing much more than I did dancing in the studio, you know. So really quite a change from when you were first accepted into the company as a dancer. Yes. And so I did sort of massage that into a conversation <laughs> with David at some point, but after choreographing with Body Talk, he did offer uh, a piece I created called Little Atlas in, it was my first main stage work and it was in the Symphony in C program. So that opportunity was for me, you know, a real test. I think after my first piece where I felt like quite a wild card, the next piece creating was harder because then there was expectation and, and you know, and so the further I got, it was actually harder, but then... Because now you weren't unknown. Yeah, I wasn't a wild card. You know, there was expectation. But at that point, then I had to go, well, is it, you know, do you really want to put yourself out there to for people to hate your work and receive bad reviews? Can you offset that as the passion and drive and the risk? And it was like, absolutely, you know. I love being in the studio creating. I love the exchange of energy with the dance. I love the conversation and throwing around ideas and throwing out material and then throwing throwing something else at them and just experimenting. And I just lose myself in that world. So absolutely. So after my first main stage piece, David then offered me a one-act piece in a triple bill, an Australian triple bill alongside Tim Harbour and Stephen Baines. Mm-hmm. And that was Aurum, which we then toured to New York with the help of the Rudolph Nureyev Prize for I New mean, Dance. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, look, oh, again, it was it was a, a, a surreal experience when he offered me the the one act piece he said look um the Joyce Foundation have offered us the Rudolf Nureyev Prize for New Dance which will mean it has to be a new creation and we're going to give it to you with Aurum next year so it was before I created Aurum and part of me went but I don't know what it's going to look like yet can I take something that I'm happy with (laughs) you know so to create this work my first main stage work knowing it was going to tour to New York the next year and I had to just go, park that. You cannot wear that pressure. You have to create the work that you're sitting out to create. You have to just, you know, uh, realise that vision to the best of your abilities and stick true to yourself, know the story you're telling, share that with the the creative team and really bring that story to life and anything after that is a bonus. So no pressure. No. So I just was like, park all that, just focus on the work. It all comes down to the work and stay true to that. So 
We did that and we took it to New York. I mean, it was received to rave reviews. It must have been like a dream. Oh, it was it was just the most beautiful dream. It really was. I had to pinch myself many times. Um, when you put a piece of art out into the world, mm. you're so proud that you've put something out there that didn't exist before that moment. But you're also terrified <laughs> because you've never felt so exposed. It's it's mm. um it's not like when you're dancing, you're representing someone else's ideas and their vision and their choreography. That's so true. It's like a window into yeah. your mind and... Yeah, and you can't control what people will write, how they'll interpret it, what they'll see on the night. No. And and for the first time being on the other side of the curtain mm. and being immersed in an audience of people you don't know and hearing not, you know, hearing whether people like it or they don't... Uh, you feel I've found I felt incredibly vulnerable and exposed. I can imagine. And so David McAllister, um, he's really been there almost all of your career um, as the artistic director of the Australian Ballet and he's just recently retired. Yes. And you have a new David in your life, um, David Hallberg. Yes. A former New Yorker. And so what comes next for you under the new David? Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. It's it's a um, it's a whole new chapter, and for me and for the Australian Ballet, I retired as a, a dancer last year. So you did. You formally retired as a dancer. So my final season was Vault, which I was choreographing for as well as dancing in two of the other works. And that's a lot. It was a lot and it was quite a juggle and I knew beforehand that that would be my final season but I just didn't think I'd have three shows as opposed to 30. (laughs) So last year was a, a huge year for change and transition and grief and, you know, getting to know myself uh, as Alice Top, the human, not the dancer, mm. seeing whether I like her at all, uh, <laughs> spending a lot of time at home during the lockdowns on my own. Um, so had you told David McAllister that this would be your final season? Yeah, we, we'd spoken about it leading up to that and so, you know, that was a decision that had been made regardless of COVID. So what was really wonderful was the support, you know, last year that we had at the ballet company, the emotional support from all the dancers connecting with each other and, and getting on Zoom and doing classes, but the the company really supported us through that, the change in in lifestyle. We're used to touring all the time and going from dancing eight hours a day to being allowed out of the house for an hour. So it was a whole lifestyle change for everyone, not just me. Of course, because the company is based in Victoria, which had some of the strictest lockdowns in the world. Yes. So strangely, I didn't feel like I'd left the company because everyone was doing the same thing. So I felt sort of buffered by the fact that it was a circuit breaker for everyone and not just for me. And then when they started to return to dance and it was like, oh, this is different. You're not going back on that train. And and so does David Horberg, as a new artistic director, does he just accept you as resident choreographer? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so... I have been resident since the end of 2018, so was made resident in September 2018. And when David uh, took over 
directing the company as of this year, he uh, did confirm that I would be resident choreographer with the company this year, which has been an incredible experience thus far because I've had the opportunity to shadow people like Pam Tanovitz who came out to create a work for New York Dialects from yeah. New York and, um, yeah, watch some some of the incredible rehearsal processes the company have had. So And also different because the company has been under one artistic directorship for so long. It's really a change to accept a new style. It certainly is. It, it certainly is. And I think, you know, it, it last year was such a mammoth year and then to to start this year with Summertime at the Ballet at Margaret Court Arena and to see the dancers you know, recalibrate and and look stronger than they ever have. I thought so too. I actually felt there was a really renewed energy. Yeah. I mean, I do also wonder if there is a bit of impressing the new director. You know, you don't know who the new muses will be and there's a real opportunity in that. Yeah, and I think having missed performing for 12 months but still doing the hard work to keep fit, the reward of getting back out there, connecting with people, mm. the adrenaline rush um, and just in engaging with with people again, you know, having danced at home in your kitchen, doing classes off a, a TV screen, to be able to share, you know, what you do. And work outside the company. Is that allowed? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm actually starting my own little project. I know. Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> and when you um, say little project, what do you mean? <laughs> the The idea for this project was kind of born out of last year, but also navigating the exiting stage left kind of process in that I'm, I was 35 when I retired, which is incredibly young. And, you know, most of the, the companies in, in Australia do, well, the Australian Ballet do roughly 180 shows a year and are always touring. It's, it's a pretty relentless schedule. Um, and the art form itself is pretty taxing on the body. It's an unforgiving lifestyle in that way. The demands are, are huge. So uh, there's nothing really that, that sort of eases you into, it's it's all or nothing. Mm. You, you go from performing at the opera house every night to falling off the face of the earth. Uh, so I thought if I could create some sort of choreographic collective that fostered emerging choreographers and helped support that conversation so people who haven't choreographed before have the opportunity to, but also people in transition can have a go, but also incorporated using dancers from the independent dance sector so that people who have suffered, you know, throughout COVID with a lot of their, you know, jobs evaporating because they're in companies that cannot provide mm-hmm. job security or stability. And on top of that, help bridge the gap between retiring from a main stage company where you're touring relentlessly and it's really hard to juggle family life, relationships, people with children, you know, and and actually the the mechanics and the operational side of that in your later years is really hard. But you don't want to just go all to nothing. So giving people the opportunity to say, hey, I'd like to do this project. It's three months. I can do that. And does this project have a name? It's going to be called Project Animo. And Animo is a Latin word which means to fill with breath, 
to to fill with air and to endow with spirit. And the reason why I love it so much is because dancing itself is breath in movement, but also it's it's about filling with breath, uh, giving an uh, an extension of breath to those retiring, and also to endow with spirit is exactly what we're doing. We're creating works that is about you and injecting your own voice in the work. You know, it's about the creatives that we're working with. It's about the the collective having conversation and making work that they want to make. We're really having this conversation now at the Australian Ballet about career transition and particularly after last year, helping people because after reti- when you retire, you think, oh, gosh, I haven't got any transferable skills. Yeah. I really feel what you're saying there because I do think that to have a career in dance, in ballet, in contemporary dance, there are so many transferable skills but people feel like they don't have any skills for another career and then to sort of be stripped of that identity and be trying to get a job behind a computer or going to uni, it must seem almost insurmountable at times and from a mental health perspective Do you think your experiences leading up to getting into the Australian Ballet helped you prepare for that transition? Yes. At the end of the day, I think the most important thing to have is the passion, the determination, the persistence. And a very dear friend of mine always says work in parallel lines. And she says, you know, if you're wanting to go here, there's this way and there's this way. So if this way doesn't work, you try somewhere else and you you go, you're going in that direction and you exercise all ways of getting there. Again, had I not had those experiences, I wouldn't have taken up choreography. So here I am going, thank God I broke my foot in New Zealand. (laughs) Would I have ever said that when I was packing up home on crutches? No. Scooping ice cream and getting pneumonia at the pub? I mean, no. I look back and I go, it was a redirection. Had I not broken my foot in New Zealand, I wouldn't have come back and worked for the Australian Ballet and I wouldn't have found choreography. All those challenges and obstacles are, as wanky as it sounds, opportunities <laughs> yeah. for growth and opportunities to test how resilient you can be and to cultivate that right. And and then when you do get into the company, not everyone's on, on the express to no, the principal train. Right. You're so right. I mean, there are no guarantees to become principal and that's why it's so important to hear stories like yours where the path has been, you know, a little bit winding, but that's what actually makes it so interesting and, you know, it provides inspiration yeah. to others. Yeah. These these are the, the mm. stories you want to hear, you know, mm. because it, it goes to show there are, there are many obstacles and you've got to find your path for you throughout it. Since we spoke, Project Animo has commenced rehearsals in Western Australia. For updates and tickets, you can find them on Instagram at project.animo or head to projectanimo.com.au. And to continue to follow Alice's adventures, you'll find her on Instagram at atops. Alice and I met in Newcastle to record our interview on the land of the Awabakal people to which we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, I speak with the new artistic director of the Australian Ballet, David Hallberg.
One of my regrets was I didn't pursue my own voice as much as I would have liked. Yes, I went to the Bolshoi. Yes, I, I danced in the major opera houses. I was afforded these amazing opportunities. But there's a different side of me as an artist that's a bit darker and pushes the limits a bit more, a bit more avant-garde that I didn't tap into as much as I would have liked. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson. Additional production by Penelope Ford with editing and sound production by Martin Peralta. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.